standing as we prepare to hear God's word. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus. We have seen his glory and we have now come to a chapter where God will confirm the covenant promises that he made to his people in a worship service with his people. So a covenant is basically just God's gracious relationship to his people. He has announced it to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 6 that he's going to bring them out of Egypt and bring them into the land of Canaan. He has ratified that covenant when the Passover lamb died and we brought them safely through the Red Sea and out of Egypt. Uh, And then he added laws, stipulations, rules around that covenant in Exodus 19 through 23. And now... All of those things are coming together as God calls the very first recorded corporate worship service together where he confirms all of those covenant promises in each one of his people. Let's now turn our attention to God's word as it comes to us in in, uh, Exodus chapter 24. Then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words." Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction." So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. Behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to understand your word as it is given to us. We pray, Lord, for this invitation into your presence. Would we hear it? Would we heed it? Would we long to come and be with the people of God to experience the renewal of the covenant, the forgiveness of our sins, the hope of the gospel? We pray, Lord, that Even as I speak, those words which are from you would be sealed to our hearts and those which are not would fall away. We ask this in your gracious name and for your sake, Lord God. Amen. You may be seated. 
So as most of you probably know, growing up, we moved around a lot, which meant that we did not just have a single church home. So we had to find a new church every time we went somewhere else. Somewhere, sometimes we did that better than other times. Early on, we went to mainline churches, and so you kind of probably know some of that. Those early years were filled with high liturgy and clunky piano music. Later on, we, uh, found, we went in middle school. We lived in Scotland for a while, and we didn't do a very good job of finding a church home. I remember visiting a Presbyterian church there, and it was beautiful. You had those ornate windows, the stained glass, the beautiful wood carvings, and a two-and-a-half-hour worship service. That was about an hour and 45 minutes too long for our family at the time, so we didn't go back to that church. We went to a lower church service as well, kind of more of a Baptistic church, and people would come up to my dad and say, hey, brother, and my dad after the service was like, I've got two brothers, and they aren't them. He didn't really like that very much. It wasn't until high school where God kind of finally put us in a church that really resonated particularly with me. It was on a ninth grade mission trip to Kinston, North Carolina, uh, that God really started moving and working and awakening my heart to his grace. Now, I tell you all those funny little stories just as a simple reminder to all of us. We all have fun church stories, or at least most of us have some funny church stories to tell, and I love hearing them, like in membership classes or just talking with you along the way. Some of you have been sprinkled, some of you have been dunked, most of you or many of you have gotten both just for good measure, right? <laughs> we also have more than just funny stories, don't we? We also have stories of hardship and difficulty, times when church has really frustrated us, and yet here we are, back again, back at church. Why? I think we all know something that's core to us, that to be a Christian means that we have to be called back again into God's presence. We know that implicitly, don't we? That's why even if we've had difficulties and struggles, so many of us keep searching keep trying to find a good church home. That's why when you have a conversation with a Christian post-COVID that isn't going, they'll kind of do this and say, I know we need to get back in the habit of going to church. And if you're just checking out Christianity today, or if you're not sure about organized religion, let me just say this, God does call us back. God calls us into his presence. He wants us to come and gather together the people of God, sharing worship and meals together, sharing love together, hearing his word, it's good for us. It's good for us to be invited into God's presence. In fact, it might be better not to obscure that word worship. Look at verse 1. This is what God says, come up to the Lord. Come up to the Lord. That's what worship is. Stripping it all away, it's an invitation to be in God's presence. And I don't care who you are, I don't care who you are, what you believe, if you ever got a bona fide invitation to meet face to face with God, I bet you would take it, right? Doesn't matter who you are. You would take that invitation every day of the week. That's what we're going to see today. God invites us into his presence. It's a bona fide invitation to come into the presence of God in worship. We're going to see three things about worship as God invites us into his presence. First, 
God invites all of us, every part of us. God's invitation is a comprehensive invitation. Second, when he invites us into worship, he does so by his grace. It's a gracious invitation. And finally, the invitation that he invites us into awaits fulfillment. It awaits fulfillment. It's anticipatory. All of our worship here is not final. It looks forward to the final day when we really do get to see God face to face. So for those of you who are writing those three ideas down, you can just write that our worship, our invitation to worship is comprehensive and gracious and hope-filled. Hope-filled. So first, God's invitation into his worship is comprehensive. God summons all of who I am into his presence. One of the things that just jumps out at you in this passage is all of the alls. There's a lot of alls in the beginning of this passage, aren't there, right? Moses told the people all the words and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice, all we will do. And Moses wrote all the words. I count seven alls in just four verses. Let's think about all these alls for a second. They mean a couple of things. First, God calls all people boys and girls and women and men, even the mixed multitude. We have to remember, we've said this a couple of times, that the people coming out of Egypt aren't just Israelites. There's Egyptians in there. There's Ethiopians. There's a mixed multitude of other servants who bound themselves to the Lord. We see a fulfillment of that in Pentecost, that God calls all peoples, tribes, and tongues, and nations together into his presence. It's not just all kinds of people. He calls all of us all of our wills and all of our minds and all of our hearts, everything he wants from us. There's no coat check at the front of the worship sanctuary. When we come in, we bring it all to God. But I think most important for this passage, most clearly in this passage, he also calls all of us to full and total devotion. All the words we must do when we come into God's presence. Look again at verses 3 and 7. The people repeat an important phrase, all the words God has spoken, we will do. Now, this repetition is similar to like the solemn vows that you get in a wedding. If you've gone to a traditional wedding, you kind of have almost two times that they say vows at the very beginning, will you take this person to be your spouse? To which you respond, I will. And then at the climactic point, do you take this person? To which you reply, I do. That repetition is important. It's a big deal here. This is a solemn ceremony that's happening. When God calls us to worship, he calls us into a full-throated commitment to him and his word. All of us to all of his commands. Now, for reference about what these commands are quickly, The Ten Commandments are kind of the foundation, and then all of the implications of those Ten Commandments, or a number of them, are kind of written out in verse 7 in the book of the covenant. That's Exodus 21 through 23. But it's really just the Ten Commandments that we have to remember. It's just the Ten Commandments and their kind of implications. And here's what I mean by that. So when we say, when God says, don't steal, certainly don't take things from your neighbor, right? 
but it also means be gracious and generous with everything that you've been given. When God says don't commit adultery, certainly it means be faithful to your spouse. It also means conduct yourself with faithfulness in all of your relationships and actions and thoughts and deeds, right? Don't murder, certainly don't kill anyone in cold blood. It also means fight back against the anger in your heart and live a life of kindness and forgiveness before others. That's why Moses writes down all of the case law in the book of the covenant, but God really only needs to give us those 10 commandments, verse 12, written in stone. But it begs the question for us, doesn't it? Is that a vow that you're ready to make? All of those words, all of those commands we will do. Can you make that? Do you assent to be a person who's committed to God's law? Even more, it's a call to examine our own hearts. Where am I equivocating? Where am I kind of fudging it a little bit? Is there a place in my heart where I'm like, God, can I just not obey that one? Martin Luther says it well, if I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. In other words, there are some things that our culture is going to be totally fine for you keeping the law. Graciousness and kindness to others. There are areas that it's going to be a little harder, right? We can probably understand what those are. In some parts of our culture, we might get pushed against for welcoming the stranger. Isn't that silly? But it's true. Some parts of our culture might push us against our sexual morality and what we believe about that. Your boss might question your motives because for the Christian, the bottom line is not your first priority. Your friends might question your love for them when you defend her rival as opposed to slandering her rival. There are places in our lives where we are called to question about God's law, right? But true worship always is a summons back to acknowledging all that the Lord says, I will do. God gets to determine our choices, our right and wrong, our convictions, our principles, and our priorities. Now look, no one else gets to demand total obedience from us. No one else. Not our spouse, not our pastor, not our teacher, not even our parents demand total obedience from us. The only thing that our conscience can be convicted by and held by is the book of the covenant, the word of God. And it makes sense, right? The only first person to be fully obeyed is the person who is fully righteous, fully good. Of course it makes sense. We ascribe worth to him. He's the one we worship. He is the one who is fully good and deserves complete obedience. Here's what it all means. We can't be half-hearted in our commitment to the Lord. We can't be half-hearted in it. Imagine starting, imagine going to a wedding and they say, do you take, you know, this person? And the person goes, I mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I do. (laughs) You're thinking to yourself, this is not going to go well, right? This is not going to go well. You don't start a vow like that. When God calls us, the one who is fully to be worshiped and adored and obeyed, He calls us to say, all of your word, Lord, I will do. Okay, that's great. 
I think we get that. We need to be all in. But it leaves that glaring question for us, doesn't it? I'm a sinner. (laughs) I'm a sinner. How can I be all in? Doesn't that mean that I can never come into God's presence? How am I qualified to do that? Well, here's why. In worship, there's actually something far more central than our obedience, and it's God's grace. We talk about it all the time, and we need to keep talking about it, right? It's God's grace is central in, in worship. All of this covenant ceremony is centered around His grace. And we see that grace exemplified in two ways, two ways. And it's kind of by the offerings that you see in verse 5. First, there's the burnt offering. That's an offering or a sacrifice of atonement. It points to our forgiveness. Second, there's a peace offering. That's an offering that points to God's fellowship, His gracious welcome of us. So first, let's talk about that atoning offering. Look at verses 4 through 8 again. Moses builds an altar for sacrifice. He offers that whole burnt uh, offering. He drains the blood. And we read in verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This action symbolizes the washing and purifying forgiveness of this atoning sacrifice. Let's think about that for a moment. All the people assent to doing God's word, and then the atonement is immediately kind of sprinkled on them. Do you notice that seems a little out of order? I mean, God didn't even give them a chance to do anything wrong. (laughs) They didn't do anything wrong yet. They just started. But wait a second. That might be exactly what God wants us to realize, that the atonement, the forgiveness The welcome, the grace comes even before we sin. Comes even before. He knows we're going to fail in many ways before the start. Even before we get going. God knows we're going to fail and he's going to offer us atonement. So God makes sure to have that at the center. Now, I think this changes everything in the way that we relate to God, right? Like, so in religion, in religion, you sin and then you go to the deity asking for forgiveness and hoping, not knowing, hoping that he'll forgive you. That's what religion is. But biblical Christianity is different. We can go with boldness and assurance, knowing that our hearts have already been sprinkled clean, that the atonement has already happened, that it happened in the past, that Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. When we ask for forgiveness, We're asking in confidence. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. Since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That sprinkling and cleaning and purifying and cleansing has already happened. That's how we can ask for forgiveness, knowing that has already taken place, that atonement. There's a second grace in this passage that's personified by the second sacrifice, that sacrifice of peace. It's also in some places called a fellowship offering. And this one isn't meant to be burned entirely. Actually, it's meant to be eaten and shared amongst the people. It's like a big Thanksgiving dinner that God is inviting us to. It's great. So let's unpack the image a little bit more. If if Haley and I invite you over to our house, we're hosting you for a meal— It's great after the dinner if y'all want to like help us clean up a little bit. That's fine. But we're not going to invite you over before the dinner to clean our house and help us cook, right? 
That would be kind of silly. That's not, that's not what's going to happen, right? In worship, God is our host. He's the one who hosts us. Worship is something God puts on. In fact, the entire worship service is meant to be a reminder that God's work in worship is primary, and my work is a distant second. A distant second. God's the primary actor. Look at all these liturgical elements. There's a call by God to come near to Him. There's a reading of the book of the covenant. There's a call and response to fulfill our end of the covenant. There's the atoning blood. There's eating and drinking of a meal together. This rich liturgy given for us is just that reminder that what we bring to worship is a distant second to what God does for us in worship. Now look, if worship is mostly about what you bring to the table, I think we're sunk. (laughs) My heart is everywhere on a Sunday morning. Do y'all ever experience that? Sunday mornings are like the hardest morning of the week. Yeah, that's the time when the things break and the kids don't get up on top, right? Like that's the time when all the problems happen, you know? And we know that because you probably can get to work and school on time, but you really have struggled getting here on time. Sorry. I don't say that to shame you. I don't. I don't say that to shame you. I say that to say something really simple. If it was about, if worship was mostly about my feelings and my exuberance and what I bring to the table and my heart, that's not gracious. Worship is mostly about God's heart for you. And that's good news. That's really good news. Now look, bring everything you have. You can worship with freedom. You can say amen at a time in the sermon if you feel like it. (laughs) That's okay. Just know, just know that it's first what God is doing for you. God's covenant is gracious. Begins in atonement, leads us in worship. He acts in grace, we receive in thanks. And finally, worship awaits fulfillment. Worship awaits fulfillment. Right now, we see God truly, but we don't see God fully yet. There's a funny interplay in this passage in particular, and really the whole of Exodus about seeing God, about seeing God. In some places, we're told we can't see God. In other places, it seems that we can see God, like the elders here who see God, but then it's a little hazy even here. There's lots of smoke. There's lots of clouds. In fact, if you kind of look at verse 10, This is the description. There was under God's feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Then again in 16 and 17, and on the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. Notice what's happening. The text doesn't actually describe what God looks like, really, right? Like not at all. The elders can really only see underneath God's feet. Their eyes can't even look up at Him. In each instance, it's simile and metaphor that describes God, right? Hear it again. As it were a sapphire, like the very heaven, like a devouring fire. In 16 and 17, the perspective changes entirely, not from Moses on top of the mountain, but down to the bottom of the mountain where the people are, like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of all the people. There's some ambiguity here. Do they see God? Yeah. No. Yes. And not really. 
for us, members of God's covenant family, we can see God. And at the same time, we can't fully see Him. I hope that each one of us has experienced seeing God in some way. I hope that we can embrace at some point that beautiful just title of Lewis's autobiography that we've been surprised by joy at the presence of God in our lives. I hope you get a glimpse of God in the love that we have for each other. John tells us that very thing. No one has ever seen God, he says. But if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. At the same time, we only see in this present age as through a glass darkly, as Paul tells us. We cannot behold Him face to face like we one day will in the new heavens and the new earth. So today, as Paul said in his introduction, is Transfiguration Sunday. That's where the church celebrates James and John and Peter going up to the mountain and seeing Jesus transfigured and dazzling white before their very eyes, revealing Himself as the true and eternal Son of God. And then you hear that voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. Listen to Him. It's interesting, I think, isn't it? It's interesting that God doesn't say, this is my beloved son, take a snapshot. Give yourself a memory of what's going on here. He just says, listen to him. Listen to him. See, God knows we can't hold on to those mountaintop experiences. We can't. We can never hold on to them. As much as your worship is great, if you've ever experienced wonderful, exuberant, wonderful worship, you can't hold on to it. Even these elders here in verse 11, they get to experience eating with God now, but they're not going to get to do that every week. Not like that. They'll realize, just like the rest of us, that even the best worship is only anticipatory. Even the best mountaintop experiences will give way to life being humdrum and hard yet again. So Haley and I recently finished watching the miniseries for War and Peace, I got to be honest, I haven't read the book. <laughs> we watched the movie, you know? It was really good. It was really good. One day, maybe we'll read it. And without giving it away, the last scene in the miniseries is a meal. Every single one of the characters experienced some really hard things in their life. Napoleon has invaded Russia during this time, and everyone has lost someone that they've loved. There's been lots of deep dysfunction in all of their families of origin that they've kind of had to work through. But then they just come together, the kids are running around, and they're in a beautiful orchard, and they're eating a meal together. And this is what Tolstoy writes, when our lives are knocked off course, we imagine everything in them is lost. It's only the start of something new and good. As long as there's life, there's happiness. There's a great deal, a great deal still to come. It's great when the story ends well. It's just too bad you have to slog through a thousand pages to get there. It's the same in our lives. Sometimes you have to slog through a lot of heartache to get to the better ending. And even the very best worship, what it does is it just deepens our hope for something better. It can't quite give us what we long for the most, to see God face to face. But that actually fills what's going on in the New Testament. Remember Romans? Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So yeah, church can be hard sometimes. Our worship can ebb and flow. Our hearts can be in all different places. 
but God is still good and we should obey him. God is still gracious, welcoming us, forgiving us. And God has promised that even though this worship is not the full worship we're looking for, that one day we will eat it new with God in the new heavens and the new earth. After all, we walk by faith, right? And not by sight. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful worship service that you are showing us in this passage. Lord, we thank you for your covenant confirmation, for your promises to us, even when we don't deserve them. We pray, Lord God, would you deepen our faith and give us hope as we look to that marriage supper of the Lamb. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.